HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Did you ever wonder how dishes like meatloaf and casseroles became part of the American culinary canon? Let's find out today on A Taste of the Past. after World War I, America, in all its abundance, went from sending food to war-starved Europe to suddenly no longer being the land of plenty. This period, of course, is known as the Great Depression. And for the first time in American history, the federal government assumed some responsibility for feeding its citizens, at least for a while. And we're going to learn all about that, too, because my guests today, Jane Ziegelman and Andy Coe, have written a new book which explores the social and cultural history, more specifically the culinary history, of that period. It's called A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression. Jane was the director, or still does direct, some culinary programs at the, Tenement, right, at the Tenement Museum in New York City. And she's the author of 97 Orchard, an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. And Andrew Coe, a culinary historian, is author of Chop Suey, a cultural history of Chinese food in the U.S. Both of them have been on my show before, and I welcome them back because it's always a delight to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Linda. The, um, you know, I've done, I, I, we were talking before the show that, um, I have done food uh, shows on depression era food, and they tended to end up being kind of dry, <laughs> like the food. No. <laughs> kind of, um, you know, interesting, but but not. I don't want to say entertaining because it's, you know, but it is indeed not as much from the social and cultural aspect that you two have brought into it. And I really, I'm anxious to um, to let the listeners know, you know, what you've done with this. You really have brought in that personal side of things, and of course, I have to ask why. You know, why? What made you approach this topic? 
Um, well, both of us, um, as you know, have um, have written books about um, food history, and ar around the same time, um, we were thinking about our next projects, and um, we both, you know, were very aware of the Great Depression um, as far in the lives of particularly immigrants, Chinese immigrants in my case, and, and Jane, with Jane with Italian, Jewish, um, Irish, German immigrants on the Lower East Side, like what they had gone through and the foods of poverty. Um, which they had um, been forced to, to eat during the Great Depression. And um, we realized that this was a period when, when Americans really had food front and foremost as like one of the most pressing topics of the day. It's when food was really a part of the national daily conversation everywhere from people's tables all the way up to the White House. Mm. And we said this is a great period um, to talk about. Nobody's really written about this in, in any kind of comprehensive way. Um, and we made it our next book. Hmm. Interesting. And so often the topic comes up in, um, in other shows on Ethnic Food International Foods that I'll do about the basis of their cuisine being the cucina povera or the you know the poor food for when they didn't have anything after the war but and it turned out being very good food that has persisted to today and didn't quite happen here jane what what what's what what That's happened true. instead uh unlike places like <laughs> italy that has this fantastic tradition of um a cuisine based on poverty rooted in poverty the United States, because of the abundance of natural resources, never really developed that knack for making something out of nothing. Out of nothing yeah. So we were blessed in that one sense, um, but we were sort of deprived in another, in that we had this great um, bounty of raw materials, and all we really had to do was sort of present them. Um, and and never really learned how to sort of eke out a cuisine um, of really, really humble materials. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, um, we've all read about you know the, the ration books, and um, some of our grandmothers still had theirs. And uh, uh, Joanne Hayes wrote a wonderful book, My Grandma's War Kitchen. I mean, there were some mm -hmm. recipes on what to do when you didn't have the foods you normally cooked with and substitutions. But you present another another side of that, and that substitutions were not for the rationed food so much, but substitutions were planned substitutions, I guess, at best, I can say. Um, yes, yeah, substitutions is sort of the, is the heart of the Depression diet. The idea of substitutions was actually something that came about at the beginning of the 20th century. It was um, the brainchild of a nutritionist named W.O. Atwater, Wilbur Atwater, who um, <clears throat> he was a, a chemist and one of our first nutritionists. He's sort of the George Washington of American <laughs> nutrition. And um, he was particularly interested in the working class diet. His idea was that working-class Americans were spending too much money on food, and he wanted to find a cheaper way to give them the nutrients they needed and eliminate unnecessary foods like chicken and meat and eggs and butter and fresh fruit, <laughs> um, and thereby free up um, income that they could use that was going to food and, and 
hopefully ease working class discontent. So that's the uh, substitution has its roots in that. Well, when you a lot of your um, studies and uh, work in this field seem to focus on the city, on urban areas, is that true? I mean, what about people in the in the rural areas on farms? Um, they were still growing their own food. Right? Yes, well, they were um, if they were able, to, lucky enough to hold on to their farms, um, that there mm. wasn't a mortgage and the bank didn't foreclose on it. Right. Um, yes, they they could grow their own uh, food, but they could not um, successfully sell the food because um, food prices had dropped. There was inc- Incredible deflation during that time. So prices had dropped through the floor and it didn't pay to bring the food to market. Um, so people had to um, live, you know, go back to the old patterns of subsistence agriculture. And um, I mean, to some extent, that was good because if, if the farmer, if the farm was in a good region, you could really live off the farm. But in other regions, um, um, life was very, very difficult for people on farms because a lot of um, farms, particularly in the South, um, grew were part of the cotton monoculture um, culture, which meant that all they grew was cotton. And um, you know, these were generally big plantations um, owned by you know big corporations, you know, in England or, or someplace else, and they really weren't particularly interested in supporting um, their sharecroppers and tenant farmers any more than they had to. And for them, life was very, very, very difficult. And a lot of them left the farms mm. um, and left, um, the, you know, the, the black sharecroppers moved nor- headed north up to Chicago and New York and places like that. While um, for, the, for the poor whites, uh, many of them uh, headed west to the promised land of California, which, of course, didn't turn out to be um, such an Eden after all. Right, not a lot um, of promise. If, if you've read The Grapes of Wrath, that's a pretty accurate depiction of what the lives of a lot of them were. Right, right. And, in fact, it's not unusual to see photographs, old photographs of of farmers, farmhands, and so frightfully thin. You could see that they were indeed starving yes. themselves to death. Right. So, okay, how bad were the conditions... What was happening with people's diets? Well, in our book, I mean, it's interesting you bring up this sort of differences between urban and rural America. We really follow those two tracks, and we see them in some ways two separate culinary cultures, which by the end of the Depression have begun to converge. Um, I can I can give you the urban side. Um, what you see in cities... Uh, first of all, is a lot of malnourished children. Mm. Um, And the way that that was sort of discovered by city officials is through attendance patterns at at local schools. Um, Attendance officers began to see that kids weren't showing up at school. And when they went to the children's homes to investigate where these kids were, these truants were, they found out that the kids were either too weak to go to school or didn't have the shoes and clothing that they needed to to leave the house. Um, We find that even among the poor, poor, uh, working class poor in cities like New York, people who once had a reasonably varied diet and the working class poor didn't eat too badly, now were reduced to a very mundane diet that was made up mostly of carbohydrates. Mm. So enter politics and the bureaucrats yeah. and and for better or for worse how did they get involved and what happened 
Um, well, poli the, the politicians became um, uh, got involved um, because local charities, private charities, churches, and other organizations like that discovered very quickly in the Great Depression that they could not handle the incredible need that was out there on the mm -hmm. streets. I mean, they were overwhelmed, and um, they were spending all their money and just em emptying their, their bank accounts in order to feed these people, and um, it was too much. And um, the first city that realized that something more had to be done was New York City. Um, and um, first, Mayor Jimmy Walker um, started a, a kind of um, an, a weird but amazing... Um, Effort which ended up with um, with the food with the police department distributing boxes of food to the poor, um, and then Governor Roosevelt, who which which of course was Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt before he was president, um, to form something called uh, Terra, the Temporary Emergency Relief Administration, and this took over um, giving food relief to the poor. Um, um, on a statewide basis, and this was um, ne had never been seen before in American life. Um, it was a really radical idea that the government that one of the responsibilities of government was to feed hungry people and to feed unemployed people, um, because poor, before people had thought, and you know, under President Hoover, the official policy had been that this was bad for America. This was bad for the American ethos of individualism and the kind of like pull yourselves up by the bootstraps right. approach. Um, but um, when everybody was losing their jobs and unemployment reached 25 percent mm. um, and there was no end in sight, there was no prosperity around the corner, um, that approach didn't work anymore. So being on the dole was, was not looked upon as being a favorable thing. But you also talk about... Um, the attitudes and the feelings of those who were you on food stamps, that it was a you know, feeling of shame. Yeah, it was surrounded by tremendous, a sense of tremendous humiliation. Um, the idea that if you were a man, you could not provide for your family meant that you were an absolute failure. And um, it didn't help that the um, government officials who were in charge of dispensing this food added to the shame, sense of humiliation experienced by, by people on the government dole, by um, asking all kinds of invasive questions, um, by showing up unannounced at people's homes to see if perchance there were a new pair of window curtains or if the housewife yeah. were wearing a new dress, which showed that they actually had income that was not going to food and therefore were no longer um, eligible for home relief. So it was, yes, there was a sense of ingrained shame, and then it was added to by the way in which uh, food was was given out. Mm -hmm. Well, then it took a more positive turn once the Bureau of Home Economics was established. Uh, yes and no. Um, the Bureau of Home Economics, um, their role in, in this um, whole depression story, it's very big, um, but it was more... Uh, they were more the um, nutritional directors um, giving guidelines to the various government groups, telling people what they should be eating and then how they should be preparing it. In a sense, they were apolitical. They were sort of, they were the scientists. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, they did not become involved in the sort of moral, ethical questions of food distribution, Mm. And then 
along came the need for nutrition. We were talking earlier about educating uh, people about nutrition. Uh, this, obviously, if you don't have a lot of food, to eat the right foods yes. is very important. Um, what, what came about with that? Um, well, what happened was is that um, um, under Tara, under Ro- Governor Roosevelt, and then under um, when Roosevelt became president, um, it was that plan um, was was um, expanded nationally into something called FARA, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. And um, so FARA handed out um, either vouchers where you could go to the grocery store and pick up food. Um, and then also, after a few months, they began handing out surplus food, and that could be anything from salt pork to potatoes to beans to, to canned beef and, and, and a whole range of other foods. And these food boxes that they were handing out also came with recipes prepared by the home, Bureau of Home Economics and nutrition advice. I mean, there's, these were pamphlets, these were sheets, which told people how to um, prepare these foods in the most economical and nutritious way possible. And at this time, I'm, people were desperate for nutrition and information. Um, they were desperate because you know they couldn't afford to put you know the old um, you know calorie-rich foods on the table, and they were worried about their own health. But they were particularly worried about their children's health. Hmm. I mean, whether you could, it was a real question of whether you um, had enough money to feed your children and feed them. Um, if you didn't, then could you feed them? Still feed them on a budget. Um, with the right combination of foods um, so that they would grow up into healthy adults. And um, um, it was, people were, were, were in dire straits about this, and, um, and they looked eagerly to the Bureau of Home Economics for this information. Just to um, add to what Andy is saying, in addition to these leaflets and pamphlets that were distributed, the Home Economics, economics women were pretty media savvy, and they used every form of media available to them, um, including newspapers. So they started a newspaper column called The Market Basket, in which they would um, disseminate uh, nutritional information and recipes. But also, and this was maybe sort of their most um, creative way of disseminating information, they, they engaged in a in a radio show um, called Aunt Sammy's Radio Hour, which actually predates the um, Great Depression, but during the Great Depression became one of the really important ways to get information into into home kitchens. Interesting. Well, we're going to come back after a short break because there is so much more to talk about, and I can't wait. So stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. She said, oh. 
Hi, I'm back, and we're talking with Jane Ziegelman and Andrew Cole on about their new book, A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression. And we were talking about um, uh, education means and learning more about food with, during the Depression era so they people could learn how to feed their families and, help, and eat healthfully. Um, this was around the same time that vitamins were also discovered and, and much talked about. So there was a lot of nutrition information to be given at that time. Um, but the um, a lot of the dishes that these home economists were recommending were not exactly the tastiest. I would concur with that. <laughs> Give us some, some examples of some of the dishes that they sure. were making. Well, the idea was... What do you do? How do you feed the family if you don't have a nice piece of roast beef or a pork chop? And then, of course, your side of potatoes and green beans. Well, you, you find meat substitutes. And women look to foods like beans and nuts and um, organ meats, so very inexpensive forms of animal protein, and um, sort of made things out of them. One of the really popular dishes during the Depression were loaf dishes. So you had things like a lima bean loaf or a peanut loaf. So we're not talking meatloaf here. A liver loaf, no. (laughs) We're talking meatless meatloaves. And these were foods that were made primarily out of some kind of ground uh, vegetable protein combined with breadcrumbs to help stretch it even further, then bound together with eggs packed into a, a loaf pan, baked, and then sliced and served with some kind of sauce or gravy. So it was, the idea was it was approximating meatloaf. Mm-hmm. It was visually, maybe it had, it resembled meatloaf. But I can tell you, because we have uh, made these loaf dishes in our home, they, they didn't really taste like meatloafs at all. They were, um, um, they don't give you that that satisfaction that you get from um, a piece of animal protein. All right. And, of course, casseroles, as I mentioned at yes. the top of the show. right. Dump whatever you have in there. Well, it, a good way to use up the leftovers as well. Still right. is and is and still employed. Right. And it's a great way to use exactly scraps of things, mm-hmm. odds and ends, and then cover them in some kind of, if you, if you hopefully you have the money for, some kind of milk sauce. So that adds additional nutrients and it sort of um, covers up your sins. So whatever you're eating, it may not be food that you exactly want to eat. Well, it's hidden under this great creamy uh, robe of milk sauce. And, and actually, you can, I mean, you can see some of those dishes still exist today. I mean, you, you think of the classic um, green bean uh, casserole right. made from, from canned green beans and cream of mushrooms, mushroom soup which is a sort of Midwestern um, classic on the Thanksgiving table and things like that. And that directly comes out of that kind of culinary sensibility. Yeah. Well, interesting you mentioned um, uh, canned vegetables, and um, or even then we get into later to frozen vegetables. Mm. Uh, industry came into the picture, and a lot of the, the, veg- the foods were, in fact, processed, were they not? Yes, that's true. Um, I mean, we had been eating, we Americans had been eating canned food since the time of the Civil War. So this wasn't entirely new technology, but the technology was improved vastly during the 20s. And um, 
we talked earlier about these home economists. Well, home economists sort of came in two varieties. One were the scientists and nutritionists and dietitians, and the others were women who um, allied themselves with the big food manufacturers and, um, and were employed by the food manufacturers or by the women's magazines who were also allied with the food manufacturers. And um, these women made it their mission to kind of um, sing the praises of these new canned foods and then frozen foods and to try and convince women that there was no shame in using canned stream beans or canned peas or canned food of any kind. You could cook foods and be perfectly proud of them and be a respectable homemaker and still use these convenient processed foods. And of course, you could do so in a fraction of the time. So that this idea of cooking with if efficiently was um, really sort of came of age during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no slow food movement during that time. <laughs> it was an anti-slow food movement. Right. <laughs> hey, those of us who grew up in the 50s remember eating a lot of those foods. They were so, those were holdbacks and they they didn't go away for a long time, you know. So. Well, they still they're still so, I'm they're sure still people around. still cook yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. Um there is of course a, a not we can laugh at it now, but it wasn't funny, but the story about um President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt and uh of course it was known that he liked to eat, but um but Eleanor had her austerity plan in mind. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, Eleanor. Eleanor was a great supporter of the home economists. And this also, she had a relationship with the home economics movement that also predates the Depression. She saw in home economics a way to, to both elevate and liberate women. So it was giving women kind of scientific knowledge about homemaking and particularly of cooking that um, raised the stature of cooking and made it sort of as honorable and as um, intellectually rigorous as any typically male profession, as engineering or medicine or law. Um, So she was somebody who believed ideologically in in the the home economics approach Mm -hmm. to food. During the Depression, she saw that women could turn to home economics as a way to save their families and, and in effect, um, keep American society strong. So it was an act of patriotism to cook scientifically. And um, she wanted to turn her family into gastronomic role models and to serve this new scientific cooking to to her husband. Um, and there was a famous meal which she served him that was made up of uh, deviled eggs that were covered in tomato sauce um, with a side of mashed potatoes and then a, a dish called prune whip or prune pudding was served for dessert, and it was a you know a, a publicity meal. Um, and um, Roosevelt was asked to give his response. What did he think of this new cooking? And he said very tersely, "It was good." <laughs> well, well, I heard that you all you made a, your own version of the prune whip, and it wasn't that bad, right? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was it was a good. It was edible. Yeah. It was, and it, it had. It's, uh, Pretty good flavor. I mean, it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it would have been better with whipped cream on top, yeah. but then everything's better with whipped <laughs> cream right. on top. That's so. right. Uh, yeah, how can you deny that? Um, well, when you mentioned earlier, um, Andy, you said that, you know, 
food was was a topic of conversation. But you know, it was also uh, fraught with you know concern, fear, and you know, um, and yet to, here we are today. You know, food is also the center of a lot of our conversations and how different you know we've we've come from that period of time when people were worried about having enough to put in their mm-hmm. mouths to now deciding you know what combinations and what it is we're going to eat it very interesting that you know the basic needs become foremost in your mind right yes uh um the importance of school lunches we i know that you um you do treat that topic um, with in your book as well, and this is where eventually a lot of children were probably getting their their main nourishment yeah it? for um, for a lot of kids, it was their only meal of the day, and it was also um, tremendously important to the families who were back at home because it meant that there was a little bit more food for the, the kids that weren't in school. So it, it, um, school lunch became a very important part of the family diet, hmm. not just for the kid, but for those at home as well. Yeah. And um, some of the, one of the saddest details that I came across in, um, in the research was kids um, in their lunchrooms at school trying to figure out ways to take some food back to their parents and one little boy put some chocolate pudding in his handkerchief and other little kids scraped the the butter off their bread so they could bring it home to their moms Um, uh, these were the kind of details that really sort of brought out the daily tragedy that was unfolding in, in, in across the United States right I mean, definitely poignant yeah. stories yeah. that you know that illustrate this situation. Um, there was um, you mentioned something about the the, the kind of the struggle between um, local traditions and well, in the culinary science, we talked about that with the home economist, but also this um, homogenization, if you will, of American cuisine. And the refuting, I guess, of, of immigrant cuisine. Yes. Well, um, yes. Um, during the Great Depression, um, I, we think of it as a kind of a turning point in the way, way that Americans eat. Um, before the Great Depression, there was a huge difference between the way people in cities ate and the way people in rural areas ate. And um, it was kind of the difference between the 19th and the 20th century. Um, in rural areas, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's also partially true that they still ate in the 19th century, while people in the cities ate in the 20th century. You know, they're eating canned food and, 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 fa- and, and soda fountain drinks and, and all kinds of, like, speed was, was very, very important in, in how they ate. Um, and during the Great Depression... Um, there was such an upheaval in the country um, of people being forced out of you know wherever wherever they were living and forced to hit the road and move to another place. Um, and at the same time, um, President Roosevelt's New Deal um, tried to remake the way American America produces, distributes, and consumes food. So it tried to remake farms. So no longer you, would you have like subsistence farms, small farms, or farms um, who, who some the workers were, were sharecroppers or tenant farmers. But you would were they wanted to build large agribusinesses 
um, which where you would have mechanization factories and combine I mean uh, tractors and combines mm-hmm. and, um, and for um, mechanized to produce a lot more food for a lot less cost um, and also they, they in rural areas they paved a lot of roads so farmers didn't have to um, um, just sell their produce in the local town but they could send it to like regional centers um, or to other states and so um, suddenly Americans can get a lot more out of season produce because they could get strawberries from Florida and, and um, lettuce from California in New York during the winter time. So this, this was also a big change. And, um, and another big change was rural electrification. Um, the f- um, federal government brought power all across the United States, and this meant that people could suddenly have um, electric pumps for water, um, so they could get water, you know, water in their house without having to use their, you know, little, their sweat, and also that they could buy refrigerators and um, and in these refrigerators um, store food and also buy um, frozen food. Bird's eye frozen dinners were coming in at this time. So um, all of these things were the sort of basis and the foundation of the modern food system that we live in today. The world of supermarkets, of produce being flown or shipped, you know, not just around the country, but around the world. Um, and, you know, all kinds of exotic foods and, and different food traditions what we have access to every day. Um, this was being built during the Great Depression. So there were actually a lot of, so much concern being on the food that it's a lot of things we learned and brought with us, lessons that we that take away from from that experience, which we employ still today. I mean, it's that's interesting that uh, it's it was something that people paid attention to and learned from it. What do you feel that you've that we as a society have have learned from this era in terms of food? Well, I would say one of the great takeaways was the school, a national school mm-hmm. lunch program. Um, it started during the Great Depression, and we still have it today. And for many children, it is still a very important source of nutrients, of nourishment. And when done right, it's also a great way to educate children about what we should be eating. This is something that the home economists had envisioned and which is still in place today. So it's both, um, it serves both a sort of nutritional and educational um, uh, service. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting because they so much attention now is played into um, eating healthfully, and you know, are you getting the right nutrition? So now we've even instituted uh, the breakfast program. Yeah, that no kid great. should start school, yeah. you know, hungry, and and there's a free breakfast for those who need it. And also the um, um, government recommended daily allowances, or, or whatever they're called right now. Um, for just how many vitamins and minerals and things like that that people should have as part of their daily diet. That began during the Great Depression mm-hmm. as well. Of course, that pyramid, as it used to be, is now ever-changing, and now it's a flat plate or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the plate. <laughs> right. So, But it's interesting because we're, you know, you were talking about how food substitutes, uh, meat substitutes, were had to be found and, you know, for the usual meat and potatoes dinner. And, and that is a, because of our abundance today. I mean, having 
pushing meat to the off to the side of the plate yeah. rather than being the center of the plate is a movement again today you know so it's but for totally different reasons yes fortunately very, yes yeah. true yeah well it is i have to say there are so many terrific stories in this book and so many in your the timeline and the and the involvement of of different groups is is just very interesting and even recipes which is <laughs> I, I think that is is a real uh, first in in terms of talking about this era of depression food again the book is called a square meal a culinary history of the great depression and the authors and my guests today are jane ziegelman and andrew Coe. thank you so much for joining me and sharing all this information thank you thank you linda and thank you for listening this has been a taste of the past Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.